Miracy. And so if we come in as coaches with this idea that I am not good enough, I am not worthy, I have to prove it at all costs, what ends up happening is we sort of detach from being present with our client and we sort of come through a lens of our ego where we're really thinking about performing to make ourselves okay in the room. Today, we're diving deep into a topic that can make even the bravest among us squirm a little in our seats, the concept of shame. Where does it come from and what can we do about it? So sit tight, folks, because we're going to unpack preconceived notions about shame and get ready to uncover the empowering concept of shame resilience. I'm Melinda Cohen, and you're listening to Just Between Coaches. I run a business called The Coaches Console, and we're proud to have helped tens of thousands of coaches create profitable and thriving businesses. This is a podcast where we answer burning questions that newer coaches would love to ask a more experienced coach. In a world that often values achievement, perfection, and always feeling good, we rarely discuss shame, let alone recognize its significance in our journey of personal growth. But when navigated with wisdom and understanding, our relationship with shame can transform making it a tool for profound self-discovery and resilience both in ourselves and our clients. Today, I've invited Kira Wackett, a therapist turned coach and the architect of a unique shame resilience program. She founded Adversity Rising LLC. She's a course creator, has a YouTube channel, and will in a matter of days launch a new podcast, Untethering Shame. Welcome, Kira. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. I'm really excited to have you on the show and to dive into this topic that a lot of people don't dive into. But before we do that, would you mind just sharing a little bit of your background with our listeners? Like you said, a therapist turned coach. It's been a very interesting journey to get where I am. So I grew up, I think maybe my second or third word was doctor. So I was on a doctor pursuit for, gosh, all the way through undergrad, through years of MCATs and interviews and all of those things, and then just sort of realized this isn't what I want to do. This isn't where I want to be. So much of my life up to that point had been about doing what I thought everybody else wanted me to do and seeking that sort of external validation. I needed to constantly be achieving, be the best, not because I thought I was the best, but because I felt like I couldn't be in the room unless people looked at me and saw that, that I wasn't worthy of being there. And so a lot of my early 20s was coming face to face with some trauma that I had navigated. And I took a few years off from any sort of education and went into some different job settings and was like, I just need to try something out. I want to help people. But once I got clear and I knew it wasn't medicine, what would that look like? What do I want to do? And then eventually found my way into counseling psychology and becoming a therapist, then made the transition over time into coaching. But honestly, a lot of the shift into coaching has been realizing the system within which therapy lies wasn't working for me to help people as best as I can. And then dealing with the shame of making that pivot again and feeling like, what will people think? What will people say? And learning to release that so I can embody the professional and the personal life that I want to have. Now, when we talk about therapist turned coach, do you consider yourself still both a coach and a licensed therapist or you're just focused solely on coaching right now? 
Well, so there's a couple things. When you, so I'm a licensed professional counselor and every state in the U.S. is different. It's really interesting. There's no sort of overarching governing body. So what people are called in every state looks different. So in the state of Oregon, I'm a licensed professional counselor. I'm maintaining my licensure and I follow that code of ethics because everybody that comes into the coaching field, there is no kind of large standard code of ethics, depending on where you go to do your training or things like that, you can find one. But some of the levels are a bit higher on the therapy side. So I really follow that. I really stick with that. So I talk a lot about what we're doing is coaching. The person coming into the room is a licensed therapist. I'm still coming in with the training of what all of that back end theory looks like, how I can support someone. I'm still very comfortable to see somebody in a high trauma state or somebody that is actively suicidal. Because I'm coaching, the delineation needs to be that I can't do that in the coaching room. So then we just talk about I'm still a licensed therapist. If that comes up, I can talk to you about what you can look for with another therapist, what support can be, how that transition can be, and the approach we're doing, where our goals are focused, how I'm going to center kind of my scope of practice is going to fall within that side of coaching. I love that distinction. Thank you for that clarity. And let's get into the heart of the topic today. How do you define shame? Like, what exactly is shame? Let's start there. I think a lot of people kind of heard the word like, oh, yeah, yeah, I know what shame is, but there's still some confusion. So the biggest thing I think is to help people understand shame in the context of how it's not guilt. So guilt is the idea of I did something wrong. I did something that goes against my values. I did something that I don't feel good about. It's action focused or inaction focused. The reason that's important is when it's about something that we do, we have the opportunity to change, to heal, to evolve, to do something about that, to correct or course correct, as it were. Shame is the belief that I as a person am unworthy. I am not good enough. I am bad. I am the problem. And it's rooted or tethered to stories that we've had since we were little that I as a person am not good enough. I am only worthy of love if, and that could be how you act, how you look, the success, the accolades, whatever that is. And so shame is really this embodied belief or perceived truth that I as a person am not good enough. I am never going to be enough. The problem will always be me. And if the problem is me, I can't change that. I walk it every day. I've internalized this sort of cloak of self. And that's really the painful part that kind of keeps many people stuck and keeps us unable to move forward in our healing journey. Now, as coaches, when we're working with our clients, like this is a powerful, is it an emotion? You talked about it being a belief. It's an emotion that we have rooted in a belief. And so, I mean, that can deeply affect our client-coach interactions. Can you explain and go deeper into the different layers of shame? Yeah. So essentially, shame is a very specific subset of fear. So your fear brain is an entirely separate part of your brain. It's your old, or some people call it your reptilian brain. You don't control it. You don't have the ability for rational or higher cognitive thought. You just act. It's just, I got to get you out of this threat as quickly as possible. And so shame is a triggered threat. It is the, again, real or perceived threat to connection and belonging. So when we feel shame... It kicks off a cascade of reactions, defenses, responses to essentially try to get you out of that state, to stop the threat from becoming any form of reality. How did I come to believe that 
if I can't help everyone or I don't have every answer, then I'm a bad coach. Or if I'm not making as much money as somebody else and there's something wrong with me, or if I don't have X number of followers, there's something wrong with me. That's come from decades of beliefs that are now manifesting in this very specific way. And so if we come in as coaches with this idea that I am not good enough, I am not worthy, I have to prove it at all costs, what ends up happening is we sort of detach from being present with our client and we sort of come through a lens of our ego where we're really thinking about performing to make ourselves okay in the room. We're more worried about the perception than we are about the work. We don't take the risks. We don't say the things or push them in the same way because we are afraid of failure. We're afraid of judgment. We're afraid of the bad review or not helping somebody. And so we kind of play it small, play it safe. Many people even listening to this might be thinking about coaching and they've been thinking about it for years, but they've talked themselves out of it because they're not good enough. They don't have anything to offer. They couldn't possibly help somebody because, again, the shame story is if you can't walk out of the gate and be perfect all the time, you might as well not even try because someone's going to find out. Someone's going to see that you aren't good enough. You're not perfect. And then everything that you've known to be true and you've worked to prevent the world from seeing, they're going to see it. And so that's really how I see it showing up for the coaches. And then again, obviously, we could see that in terms with our clients as well. Now, as a coach, when we encounter a client that always seem to be perpetually in the same place, no matter what, do we as coaches need to take a step back and say, hold on, is shame driving the narrative here? And how do we address that? And as coaches, can we address at that level? Or is that when we need to say, a therapist or counselor needs to come in? Can coaches work at that level? How does a coach navigate when we see that indication that the client is just not progressing no matter what? And how do we understand that? So there's a couple of things in what you're saying. So one, I think being very clear first off, if you're seeing that as the coach, progressing by what standards? What are the goals that you and your client have? And are you continuously coming back to check in on those? Because I think sometimes, again, part of the layer could be that I, as the coach, have an expectation that, okay, we've got these many sessions. We're supposed to be making progress. That's my job. I'm supposed to be able to do this. So one question would be, have you talked about your goals and your work that you're going to be doing? And if you haven't, do that. If you have, are you revisiting that to get their feedback of how they think it's going, what's happening? Maybe they think they're progressing really fast and really far. The second thing that I think about is who's working hardest in the room. So this comes back to the shame on the coach's side. I remember when I was in my master's program, when you were doing sort of your practical hours for therapy, there were these mirrors are they one-way, two-way mirror? Whatever it is where I'm in a room, people can see me from the other side of it. And I got feedback from one of my supervisors that basically said, you're going to burn out if you keep doing this. And I was like, doing what? You know, I'm fresh into this. I haven't even graduated yet. What do you mean? Are you saying I'm not good enough? And again, my shame story is coming into play. And she goes, you're working harder than all of your clients in the room. And I was like, well, oh, what does that mean? And one of the biggest things is to realize if I'm working harder for their life, all I'm doing is conditioning the outcome to be based on me. I am either making myself the hero or the villain, and eventually I'm going to make myself the victim because they're somehow letting me down. So it's all going to get tied to me as the central character. So I think from the coach's side, those are the two things that I really bring in. From the client side, I think a lot about, again, what would it look like to step back and have a conversation with them about what's happening in the room? And what happens is if we don't bring it to the surface to talk about how we're feeling in that moment, 
we're going to have shame on both sides. So again, either they're maybe feel like I'm not doing anything. I can't. I'm coming in every single week and I'm not doing the homework. They're starting to build that story of like, why am I even here? I can't change. Maybe I am the problem. Maybe I am broken. You're coming in feeling like I'm not working hard enough. What's the issue here? So there's kind of two sides of it, but we're not talking about it in the space. So there's no opportunity to sort of release the valve on the shame. So instead you say, I'm noticing myself start to feel anxious when we come into our sessions and I'm feeling like we're not moving in the direction that I feel like we should be moving or that I've come to believe you want to be moving and whatever that language is. I'm noticing and you talk about how you're feeling. I'm noticing I'm starting to feel frustrated in our interactions. I'm wondering how you feel. What's it like for you to come in and for us to feel like we're circling the drain on this topic? Or before you go there, start to ask them, how are you feeling when you come in? How would you describe our progress? What motions, you know, have we made and things like that? I do think it's within the realm of the coach to stay with them in this unless it becomes a higher mental health concern, like an acute, very high level concern of, you know, psychosis, active mental health issues, such severe depression that you're noticing things like passive or bordering on active suicidality, a lot of self-harm thoughts, things like that that might require some more intensive support and care. But I think somebody just coming in feeling stuck, I mean, this is what's been happening to them for years. And our job, I think, is to sit with them in it and be like, okay, we could keep doing this, but at what cost? I am now just helping perpetuate the story that you're never going to get anywhere. So you might as well stop trying. So let's pause. Let's pivot. Let's find another way. Maybe that solution is maybe coaching isn't right for us right now. Maybe we need to take some time off. Here's some things I might think about before we can come into the space. Maybe it's holding them a bit more accountable to the work or reflecting on why they're not doing the work. Maybe it's stepping back and talking about, are we too many steps ahead? Is the change expecting action before we've built the insight? Maybe we need to step back here. Whatever that is, though, tying that back into our own shame, there's a lot of coaches that then are afraid of, will I lose that client? What happens if we don't make the change? I won't have the income. I won't have the regularity. Again, I'm supposed to be the one to fix it. And if I can't, what does that say? And so kind of coming back full circle, I think the sort of answer on every side is the willingness to pause and reflect both internally, but then also to create the space to pause and reflect in the room. And sometimes that means saying really uncomfortable things about what's going on in the process of the work. Now, you've given us some indications of what we can look for in your experience. What are some other signs that coaches can look for to discern when a client might be tipping over into this versus when we can just sit in that space? I know one of the clients that I used to work with, it became very obvious that depression was significant. And we had that conversation that you were talking about. You know, does it make sense? Was it an either or? Do you either do coaching or do you stop and do get some different type of support for the depression that's clearly relevant here? Or is it a both and? Can you work with a therapist and we still work together and that we just had an open dialogue about it and then we just one week at a time, one session at a time figured out, can we do this? And after a couple of sessions, it was apparent he couldn't. And so it's like, we're going to pause here, go do that work, the doors open, and then we'll pick up where we left off. And it worked well that way, but it was a difficult conversation. So what are some other signs that coaches should look for to know how to make that tricky decision? I think sort of three things come into play. One, again, what is the work to be done? What are the things that they need in that moment? And are you equipped and trained in how to handle them? 
So if it is high crisis, high acuity, someone starts using substances, maybe I am trained in eating disorder work. So if somebody is exhibiting some of these behaviors and you're worried about their medical or physical stability, then making a referral out in writing to them that they need to seek additional support and care is important. And that's protecting you. But it's also just sort of an ethical standard, having it written down, having those recommendations in place. The second thing, and I think to think about is what's the relationship and what is the story you know about them coming in? So if you're surveying it up front and you're going, gosh, there's some stuff I'm just not sure how I'd feel, how I'd handle it. You're noticing things like as a coach, you're not on call care. You're not on, you know, you're not available. You're not supposed to be available for a crisis situation. So if you're noticing there's a potential for that right up front, maybe making a different plan, writing these things out. But then I think as you're doing that, again, coming back to, okay, this is the relationship that we have and they need additional support. How can I best make that transition with them? So maybe a couple of your sessions are looking for therapists together. Maybe they're making a list of what type of therapist they'd want to work on or getting clear on the goals that you can't accomplish together. So you're becoming that transition person for them. And then I think the sort of final part of it is to be able to release the fact that you can't fix everybody. And so some people, depending on how nicely you deliver it, what's going on, you may not be able to give them everything they need and it might not be a smooth ending. But I do think, again, kind of even thinking about that, the core pieces are if we notice somebody dipping too low or too high in terms of their mental state, they're engaging in behaviors that are problematic and likely addictive in nature. So again, we could think about substances, eating disorders, sex addiction, all sorts of different things that you're thinking that there might be some additional needs and or some medical stability needs where we might need to look at psychiatry, things like that. And then I think the third thing is, is it in the scope of your profession? So if somebody, for example, it still falls within the coaching realm, but I had a client who's now wanting to explore ethical non-monogamy and polyamory as a possibility in their relationship and how they want to move forward. I'm not trained in that. I can have conversations. I've had clients that identify that way, but I recognize that there are coaches I've met that that's literally the work they do. They specialize in that. So then I go, I could do that, but why? I'm over here and this is my scope and this is what I'm good at. I need to be mindful that the client needs the person that's best in that scope to help them. Now, when it's clear or a little bit clear that as a coach, we can work with them and we continue to work with them, you know, emotional validation is a key aspect of building the trust in that coaching relationship. How do you strike a balance between validating your client's emotions and helping them regulate those that might be unproductive or harmful? I think a lot of the conversation I have with people is around emotions are never wrong. It's our reaction or the actions that we take as a result of them. And so sometimes those reactions are cognitions. So it's the thoughts that we need to talk about, reframe, heal from, work on developing different patterns, or it's the actions and reactions that we have either towards ourselves, in our relationships, whatever that looks like. So a lot of my discussion is around how do we name and validate the emotion, what those different emotions might be and how we might experience them. And then we kind of do a both and. What you're feeling is absolutely okay. And your body's response system to that feeling is what's causing the pain or is what's causing pain to other people or is the thing that we need to address. The same way that I approach my three and a half year old, I totally understand that you're angry, we're leaving the park and hitting me is not an okay response. It's the exact same thing. When we're in that state, our brain is the same at a toddler level. How do you name and validate, hold space for the emotion, and then recognize what's the sort of domino effect 
that we have control over and can address. Now, how can a coach integrate the principles of shame resilience into their coaching practice in a way that complements the unique needs and goals of each client? So much of what shame resilience is, is ultimately about saying, I will feel shame for the rest of my life. Because as we said, shame is an emotion. Emotions are not controllable. Emotions are not good or bad. They just are. We are feelings beings. We are not cognitive beings. The sort of cognitive development comes second. And so shame resilience is about kind of owning and naming that spending some time getting clear on why those stories exist. So again, we all know what shame is now, but you getting to that belief about yourself came from a very different story and set of experiences than how I came to that belief. So looking at early childhood experiences, relationships with our caregivers, thinking about attachments. I think as coaches, we could do, sometimes there's sort of this, in coaching, we can't talk about anything past-oriented. That's therapy, and we can't do that. That's not true. It's, again coming back to what's your role and goal and what's the acuity and the need of your client. But talking about that, gosh, okay, so it sounds like there's this fear, you know, maybe you're working on speaking up in the workplace setting. Talk to me about what it was like for you when you would speak up as a kid. What was that like for you in school? And so really looking at that. And so it's helping people understand, I've got it, it's here. Where did it come from? And now thinking about how can I move forward integrating that into my life? And I think two things that we could do more of with our clients, one, helping them come back to the term radical acceptance, which is controlling what is in our control and releasing the rest. There's a great exercise called a control wheel that people can do with their clients. So whatever situation is coming up, whatever you're working on, take your client, have them put a circle in a sheet of paper and then write everything inside of the circle that is inside of their control, and then outside of the circle is everything outside of their control. And then it's talking to them about what it looks like to release everything outside of the circle. And then I think the other part that's really key is helping reconnect our clients to their bodies. And it's not just how I look, but it's things like, I shouldn't need to sleep this much. I shouldn't be tired right now. I shouldn't have to go to the bathroom. I shouldn't need a break. I should be able to concentrate more. There's such an expectation on the body what we do then is we start to work on when we're feeling a certain way, when something happens, you know, somebody hurts us, or if we're feeling out of control. The other day, our car got hit while we were parked in the Home Depot parking lot, and about 10 seconds prior to this car coming around and taking our door off right next to me, my daughter had been standing right where he pulled in. I had a full-blown intense reaction, and it was days of just reactive. I was irritated at the world. I was scared. I was shutting down. So coming into that place of knowing, oh, my gosh, my body and my emotional self are trying to tell me that I have become untethered to the world. I need to root back in. I need to come back down. OK, I'm feeling shame right now. I shouldn't be reacting so intensely. Nobody got hurt. Everything's fine. Why is this still bothering me? Why am I being a jerk to my husband? All of that is coming back to, OK, I can't control what happened to me. I also can't control that my body went into a protective state. But I can control how I'm responding right now in this moment to what's going on and how I can show up for my body, how I can show up for myself and really think about the fact that my only choice is to be in the moment now and to allow my body to continue to move forward. So that just kind of using that as an example is a way that we could help somebody for something that doesn't even feel like it's shame driven, but it is because the thing that was keeping me triggered was my reaction to what happened. So how do we again come back to that for our clients and help them recognize that? 
I would say the number one thing I have to do with clients in this whole process is slow them down. We're not at action yet. We're not here. We haven't even built the case for why your goal matters to you. So if you, you know, the example being New Year's resolution, why do you care to go to the gym? And what's going to happen in two weeks when you stop going? Because we didn't buy into a goal that was about you. We bought into a goal that was about shame. We bought into a goal that was about shoulds. So we need to make sure we don't develop action plans for our clients until they have buy-in that's connected to their values, not their shame-based system. And I could see how that would be a lot of the upfront work that the coach does with their client to slow them down, make sure that's clear, because I'm guessing by living in the shame, they're skipping past that. That's how they stay in the shame state to begin with. And so as the coach to slow them down and making sure that they're not missing anything so that they don't get into that survival mode again, but are able to choose a different pattern. So what's some of the best advice that you can give or pass forward to a newer coach getting started or any coach that wants to begin adopting a shame resilience approach in their coaching practice? I would say, honestly, to start reading around shame resilience theory. So that was really coined by Brene Brown. There's a lot of tenants that cross over with interpersonal theory that people can look at. So if you learn about shame defenses, some of the responses that are happening there, I have a lot of resources that I'm happy to talk with people about. If they send me an email, I can help direct them or answer questions as well. But I think just starting to read about it and again, just sort of recognizing that All of us have come to the place that we are with a certain set of expectation and rules of how we have to be to be okay in the world. I think the second thing then to do with it is to, and obviously everybody could find their own type of support, but I think seeking your own support while you are a supporter for other people. Because so much of what comes in the room is our own stuff. So in the therapy world, we talk about transference and counter-transference. So when your client becomes a representation of something in your life that has nothing to do with them and you start reacting from that place and vice versa. When your client starts to act towards you, maybe because they see similarities to you and their mom or someone else and they react a certain way meeting with another maybe more seasoned coach, talking to a therapist, but just processing what it's like to hold such a position of power and yet ultimately know that the best thing you can do for your clients is to not see yourself as being the one in a position of power. I think having somebody that is not connected to your clients that you're working with that isn't feeling that same pull can help you sort through that in a way that really can allow you to show up and be like, okay, my brain thinks this is about me because my brain doesn't want me to screw up and I care about my clients and I just want to do the best that I can. But the best that I can do means releasing the pressure that I have to perform a certain way and just being with them in that moment. Honestly, it's the future of the past where they're stuck. That's how you'll know that your clients are in a state of shame is if they're future oriented or they're ruminating on the past. That's sort of a key place to know. So it's the same for us. Just be here in this moment. You've got to stay out of your own way with it. And part of that is just releasing the idea that your job is to be the fixer, the solver. Yeah. And I think my own personal opinion, I believe with the ripple effect from the pandemic, I think we're just beginning to get a sense of the impact it's going to have on people for years to come. And I think as coaches, we're going to need to integrate this work more into our practice because there's going to be more clients that come with that. 
and I think we're just touching on the surface, so I'm really grateful for our conversation. I just want to summarize a few things that we've talked about today. You really unpacked how do we define shame, gave us that distinction between it's not guilt, it's not that I did something wrong that I feel guilty about, but how shame is a belief that I'm flawed, unworthy, and that it's really a subset of fear. I really like how you brought that into the conversation, that it triggers a threat and it kicks off that cascade. And it's important for us to understand this when we're working with our clients to know what does trigger them so that we can back up and kind of course correct with them. We talked a lot about the coach-client relationship and indicators as coaches when our clients are consistently staying stuck or like you just said, they're in the future or they're remaining in the past. And you gave us several indicators about how can we identify when shame is present and what we might need to do about it. I love how you really gave very specific about stepping back, looking at our goals, revisiting them constantly, getting the feedback from our clients on how they think they're progressing, not what we believe or think should be happening. We got into a great conversation about that very delicate balance and that line of coaching, counseling, therapy. When is it time? When is it not? And your insight into being a part of both of those worlds was very helpful. And how do we know when we need to bring in somebody and how important it is to make that handoff that we just can't leave them, but how do we begin to make that handoff? Or is it a both and? Can we work with them while they're getting other support? We talked about balancing the client's emotion that they're having versus regulating the unproductive ones. I love how you gave us that specificness of acknowledge the feeling, separate the response. Like I imagine as a coach, a lot of that being done especially in the early stages of working with a client that's bringing a lot of shame into their journey. And you talked about integrating the principles of shame into our coaching practice. And again, I love how just you went really granular with how a coach can navigate that if this is the kind of work that they want to bring into their business and their practice and the work that they do with their clients. Kira, do you have any additional parting words for our listeners? Honestly, I think the only thing is when I tell myself every day, at any given moment, I am doing the best I can with the energy, the resources, the tools that I have available. If anybody heard this and they're thinking about, oh, gosh, I didn't do this with my client. I missed this thing. I did that. You didn't know this then. You did the best that you could with the information, the tools, the resources that were available to you. And so shame wants you to get stuck in the past so that you don't think about how you can integrate this to move forward. So just be here in any given moment when you screw up, be there. It's totally fine. We're all just doing our best. And I think as coaches, if we can get really clear in our values and our why for doing this work, if at the end of the day, we can come back and say, did I act in accordance with my values? I did. Did I get everything right? No. And I can honor that again, who I am is worth celebrating, even if what I did isn't exactly how I wanted it to be. Thank you for listening to this episode of Just Between Coaches and a big thank you to Kira for this incredible conversation. You can find out more about her at adversityrising.com. That's adversityrising.com. And in the show notes, you'll also find the links to her YouTube channel and her new podcast, Untethering Shame, that's launching September 17th, plus a discount code for her four-part workbook, I Love Me. Kira, thank you so much for coming to the show. Thank you. I'm Melinda Cohen, and you've been listening to Just Between Coaches. Just Between Coaches is part of the Mercy FM podcast network, which also includes such shows as Self-Awakened Lifestyle and Behind the Launch. Mishi Lance produced this episode. I wrote this episode together with her. Cynthia Lamb is our supervising producer. Danny Eney is our executive producer. 
And to catch the great episodes on Just Between Coaches, please follow us on Mercy FM's YouTube channel or your favorite podcast player. And if you enjoyed the show, please leave us a comment or a starred review. It's the best way to help us get these ideas to more people. Thank you and see you next time. And so the tailor, having gathered together the beautiful scraps, began to sew. He stitched and he sewed and he sewed and he stitched. And by the morning time, he had made himself a beautiful coat. Now, when he wore his coat into the market, everyone admired it so much that the tailor decided to wear the new coat everywhere. And that's what he did. He wore it and wore it and wore it until it was all worn out. Or was it? In each episode of Once Upon a Business, Lisa shares a fairy folk or traditional tale and then extracts rich business lessons that are applicable for entrepreneurs, coaches, and course creators. Stories always take us on a journey from one place to the next. Sometimes this journey is literal, sometimes it's metaphorical, but always we find ourselves transformed. This story, The Tailor's Coat, originating from Europe, takes us through a literal transformation of the pieces of cloth and yet somehow teaches a powerful lesson. It does speak to a common entrepreneurial journey. Many of us start out working for someone else and give them everything we've got. Perhaps the tailor finally deciding to make something for himself is similar to the entrepreneurial desire to begin to create a business for ourselves. We take the scraps, the skills that we've developed, the experience that we've gained, and we launch our own business. I think it's an incredibly important skill for an entrepreneur, for anybody running a business, to be able to know that creating something out of nothing is always possible. And it's often the way forward because it's out of the scraps of what's been done before. It's out of almost the missing pieces that are not quite there that we can actually bring our creativity and bring our determination and bring our vision to create something really wonderful, really brand new and really beautiful. And then we can walk around the town with it. You know, we can be proud. We can step out and we can wear it until it's almost worn out, but not quite. To hear more of Lisa's stories and learn the deep lessons they carry, make sure you subscribe to Once Upon a Business wherever you get your podcasts. We'll see you every other week with a brand new episode.